For more information about our teaching and preaching ministry, you can find us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The following sermon has been brought to you by Cornerstone Orlando, making disciples for the glory of God. The title of our sermon this afternoon is On the Wings of an Eagle. This is Revelation chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. So in our afternoon study now of Revelation, we've been working verse by verse through this book. We've come to the final segment now of Revelation chapter 12. Um, John, in Revelation chapter 12, the chapter opened with John witnessing, seeing these two great signs in heaven. This regal woman um, clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, a head or a garland of 12 stars upon her head. She's with child, verse two, crying out in labor and in pain to give birth. And then this other great sign in heaven, this great fiery red dragon, seven heads, 10 horns, seven diadems on his heads. And we identified that regal woman with the people of God. We identified that dragon with that serpent of old, verse nine, that Satan, that adversary, that Diabolos. And with, these, with those two signs now, having appeared to John, with those two signs fresh in our mind, the promised seed, the seed that was promised in Genesis chapter three, that promised seed that would crush the head of the serpent, that promised seed has been born to the woman. Uh, that devouring dragon who hovered over her waiting to, to devour that male child as soon as he was born has failed to accomplish his task of destroying her child. That's verses three through six. Her child, the one who would rule all nations with a rod of iron, he has been raised from the dead in victory over the dragon. He has dished out, as it were, a crushing defeat of the dragon. He has ascended into heaven on the clouds. He has been enthroned as the promised Davidic king over the everlasting kingdom. And the dragon has been summarily defeated, entirely defeated. The serpent conquering death of Jesus Christ, along with his subsequent resurrection from the dead and his enthronement as king, then authorized Michael at the head of the heavenly armies to remove Satan from the courtroom of heaven by force. Satan is cast out of heaven so that he may no longer stand before the judge of all the earth, stand before the courtroom, the bar of God's justice in the courtroom of heaven. He may long, no longer stand there and accuse the brethren day and night. His accusations have been rendered utterly baseless, utterly baseless. The devil with his angels then are cast to the earth. Verse 12. Therefore rejoice. That is a cause for rejoicing. That victory is a cause for rejoicing. The fact that Satan has been cast out of heaven, away from the bar of God's justice, away from accusing the brethren before his throne day and night. Rejoice, O heavens, you who dwell in them. But woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, all those that dwell there. For the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. Having merely bruised the heel of the bridegroom, Satan's current intention is to bruise the heel of his bride. He knows that's all, he, all that he can do, is bruise her heel. Nevertheless, he wants to wreak as much havoc as he can. And having bruised the heel of the bridegroom, he now focuses attention on the bride. He is relentless in his pursuit of her. He is full of wrath, knowing that he has but a short time to cause as much misery as he can. And that is his effort, that is his pursuit, that's his aim, and the people of God are his target. Verses 13 through 17 depict Satan's response to his defeat. And Satan is a sore loser. Satan is a sore loser. His objective with the short time that he has now is to persecute the woman and the rest of her offspring, to cause as much misery and as much pain as he can. Verse 13, so when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he turns his attention on the woman, right? He persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. As we talked about this morning in Romans chapter 12, you and I have to live with our eyes wide open to that reality. If our eyes have not been opened to that reality already, we must open our eyes to that reality. We must live in, in the sight of that fact that we are going to face the persecution of our adversary. 
We're going to face the wrath of our slanderer, the devil. We're going to face trial and tribulation. We're going to face persecution. And at times it can, it can catch us off guard. Like we're surprised by it everywhere. The Bible says we're not to be surprised by those things. We're not to marvel at those things. It is, it is axiomatic, brothers and sisters. We're going to face suffering. We're going to face difficulty. We need to buckle our seatbelts and settle into that reality. On the night in which the Lord Jesus Christ himself was betrayed at the hands of a malicious traitor, on that very night in which, he, in which he himself was betrayed, the Lord met with his disciples in an upper room and he said this to them. He said, they're going to put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. In other words, they're going to pursue you even to the end of your own life thinking that they're doing God's service. And these things they will do, Jesus says, because they have not known the Father nor me. And evidence that they do not know the Father, that they do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, is that they are pursuing you, right? Is that they are putting you out of the synagogues, so to speak. Is that they are persecuting you. The Lord says in verse 18, if the world hates you, Know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. We shouldn't find that mysterious. We saw what they did with the Lord Jesus Christ. They will do the same to you. They will do the same to me. Remember, Jesus says, the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. We have to remember the words that Jesus said. He calls his disciples to remember the words that he said. Sometimes we're reminded when we're persecuted. We need to remember before the persecution. We need to prepare ourselves for when it comes. We need to remember these words. The reason that he gives in those texts, John 15, John 16, as he's meeting with his disciples in the upper room, the reason that he gives for telling them these things is this. He says, these things I have spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. You should not be made to stumble. We need that encouragement from the Lord. We need that instruction from the Lord. We need that, that reminder from the Lord so that we can prepare ourselves for when those things happen, for when that persecution comes, that we might not be overcome by it. We might, we might not be made to stumble. The Lord is essentially telling us to prepare ourselves. Prepare yourselves. You, when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you have enlisted in the Lord's army. <laughs> You've been drafted into service. You've committed yourself to serve the Lord Christ and you have committed yourself, uh, the high cost of discipleship, you have committed yourself to serving him even to the point of your own death. Gird up your loins and prepare for battle. These things I have told you, the Lord says, that when the time comes, you may remember that I told you of them. That you, remember, that you may remember that he is sovereign over all these things because he has told you that they would come to pass. That you may be prepared for the suffering, for the trials, for the adversity that you're going to face so that you may rely upon the grace and power of his spirit to persevere. Calvin said, those who wish to be exempt from persecutions must necessarily renounce Christ. But if you're not going to renounce Christ, you're going to suffer. You're going to face persecution. Well, you need to get used to the idea, right? And frankly, there's cause for rejoicing, rejoicing in that idea. Those who wish to be exempt from persecutions must necessarily renounce Christ. Now, to, to embrace him through faith is to have fellowship with him in his suffering. To, have, to embrace him in faith is to have fellowship with him in his suffering. And it is fellowship with him in his suffering that precedes fellowship with him in glory. Those things are connected, they go together. We've already discussed several texts that drive this point home, several of those this morning. For the purposes of our time together this afternoon, let me add another text to our list. Turn with me to Philippians chapter three. Philippians chapter three. Let's add yet another text. Our brother mentioned this morning a theology of suffering from the Bible. There is a robust theology of suffering from the Bible. These are all texts to contribute, that, contribute to that theology. There is a purpose, there is an aim, there is a point to our suffering and the Bible is, God is gracious in his word to remind us of those things frequently. And in Philippians chapter three, verse 10, 
Paul has said in Philippians chapter three, that all those things that were once counted as gain to him, he's now counted as rubbish. He's counted them as rubbish. He's counted them as loss, as nothing in his sight. So that, verse 10, I may know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. There it is. Paul has counted all things loss, all things as rubbish, so that he may have fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ in his suffering. You think Paul is rejoicing in his suffering with Christ? Yeah. There's obviously a sense in which no suffering is pleasant. That we don't joy in the sake of suffering for suffering's sake. But there is a cause for rejoicing in our suffering. And that cause of rejoicing is the fact that we share in in sufferings, we fellowship in sufferings with the Lord himself. And Paul knew that. He said he counted things lost that he might know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Commenting on this text, Calvin again. Christ crucified is set before us that we may follow him through tribulations and distresses and hence the resurrection of the dead is expressly made mention of that we may know that we must die before we may live. We are going to die before we live. We know that from Romans 6. We are dead to sin and self. His death to sin uh, has been made our death to sin. We die before we live. There's a sense in which we die daily. Paul says that to the church at Corinth, 2 Corinthians, that daily they are delivered up to death for his sake. We're delivered up to death for his sake. You must die before you are to live. Resurrection is only precious to those who are delivered up to death. Resurrection is only precious to those who die. You are called to embrace death, death to sin, Death to self, death to this world, death to this evil age, death to living life for yourself, trusting in Jesus Christ to raise you. We're called to embrace that through faith because you must die before you live. Calvin continues, this is a continued subject of meditation to believers so long as they sojourn in this world. This should be our constant meditation. This, however, is a choice consolation that in all our miseries, we are partakers of Christ's cross. If you've put your faith and trust in him, you've been united with him through faith, then a consolation to us in our difficulty is that we share his cross in that sense. We are partakers of Christ's cross if we are his members so that through afflictions, through afflictions, through trial, through tribulation, the way is opened up for us to everlasting blessedness. Blessed are you the Lord says, when they revile you, when they speak all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Blessed are you. Blessed are you when you are persecuted. That's the way the New Testament authors conceive of our difficulty, our adversity, our persecution. Blessed are you when you face that kind of adversity, that difficulty. We're not going to be exempt from tribulation. There's a whole camp of eschatology that somehow believes that the church is going to be exempt from tribulation. Brothers and sisters, you know, as well as I know, we're not exempt from tribulation. We're not exempt from tribulation. We're going to face difficulty. All those who desire to live godly in this present age, 2 Timothy chapter three, will suffer persecution. You're going to suffer difficulty, adversity, suffering, persecution. But the consolation in that is that there is a purpose, an aim, a cause for joy, even in the midst of that pain. There's a cause for joy. We've become objects. Revelation 12 teaches us that. We've become objects of the devil's wrath. So prepare yourself for the battle. Prepare prepare yourself for the difficulties we're going to face. Our present reality as the church is described in Revelation chapter 12, verse 13. And when the dragon saw that he'd been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. That is the explanation that is given for our tribulation. Paul says, it is with much tribulation that we must enter the kingdom of heaven. It is with much tribulation that we must enter. The answer to that tribulation or the cause to that tribulation, the mystery behind all of it is the operations of the devil. 
the operations of Satan. That is because the dragon, when he had seen that he'd been cast of the earth, turned his anger upon the woman who gave birth to the male child. I want you to look with me for a moment at the context of that persecution, okay? And I want, to, I want you to see that from a text in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Turn to 2 Thessalonians. There's a, there's a context to this battle, this suffering, this persecution. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, uh, in this letter to the church at Thessalonica, Paul, Paul's intent on encouraging the, the saints at Thessalonica, right? The saints in Thessalonica are facing tremendous persecution, the likes of which you and I have, have never seen. They're facing tremendous persecution in their witness for Jesus Christ. The seed of the woman is facing wrath at the hands of the serpent and his seed. And Paul knows they need strength. They need encouragement to persevere. In order to encourage them, Paul turns to the relationship or he considers the relationship between their persecution and the victory that has already been won by our Lord on the cross, okay? So if you put yourself in there, first century sandals for a minute, okay? The church is being severely persecuted, tremendously persecuted. They need encouragement. They need strength. They need to endure. They don't need to turn away. They need to endure the persecutions that they're facing. Paul knows that they need encouragement. He wants to write an encouragement and encourage them. So to encourage them, Paul wants to explain for them the relationship between their suffering and the victory that, that Jesus Christ has already won on the cross. He wants to explain that to them. And he also wants to explain the relationship between their suffering, their persecution, and the judgment upon those who are persecuting them. He wants to draw that out for them, okay, to encourage them. And that's to give them strength, give them encouragement to persevere. Look at verse three. Paul writes to them, we are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly and the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other. Paul begins by commending their love, commending their faith. Their faith is growing. They are growing in the faith. They are a good example of a New Testament church. Right? They're a good example. This is Romans 12. Right? Their love for one another grows exceedingly. It abounds toward one another. Let me make a connection between Romans 12 on Sunday morning and Revelation 12 on Sunday afternoon. The context in which you, are, you and I are going to persevere through suffering together, the context in which we are going to endure hardship as good soldiers of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? First Timothy, second Timothy, is the love that we have for one another. We love one another in the way that Paul has called us to love one another in Romans chapter 12, and it sets a context then in which we as the body of Christ can endure through tribulations together. It's only by loving one another in that way, only by loving in those ways, diligently, fervently serving the Lord Christ, verse 11 there, right? It's only by loving one another in those ways, serving one another in the church in those ways that you and I are well-equipped then to face together as an armed front face together the persecutions that are coming against us. That love and that, that endurance, they're directly connected, okay? So in verse three, he thanks God for the Thessalonians because their, their faith grows exceedingly and because of the love that they have for one another. It abounds towards one another, right? Your love abounds, Paul says to them, verse four, so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God because of your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. Which is, those persecutions, those tribulations that you endure, is manifest evidence, verse five, it's a clear indication of the righteous judgment of God, so that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. That's a mouthful, I wanna explain what he's talking about there. The church at Thessalonica has demonstrated a commendable tenacity in the face of persecution, uh, a tremendous stick to in the face of adversity, right? In 1 Thessalonians, Paul had been really concerned about this church. Paul had been concerned about them because of the tremendous persecution, the tremendous pressure that they were under. He sends Timothy to find out about them, see how they're doing, right? because he's concerned. 
Timothy came back with a good report, and a good report under all that persecution, the news of that spread. They were all encouraged by that. It was a great encouragement to all the church that was being persecuted at the time to see the, Thessalon- the Thessalonians, the Thessalonians, to see them persevere under trial. So that news spread. This group is standing strong, okay? Now think with me about ver- verse five. What is it, verse five, that is clearly indicated in the persecution of the Lord's church at Thessalonica? What is indicated by the persecution? Verse five, God's righteous, righteous judgment. Right? Their persecution, their tribulations that they endure are manifest evidence. They are a clear indication of God's righteous judgment. His righteous judgment in two ways. His righteous judgment in rewarding the faith and perseverance of his saints, rewarding their endurance. Right? Uh, if you overcome, he'll give you the crown of life, the Lord's own words, those promises related to our endurance, our perseverance counting them, in this case, counting them worthy of the kingdom for which they suffer. So the Lord is righteous in his judgments, counting them worthy to enter the kingdom of heaven because of their endurance through those persecutions and his righteous judgment in rewarding those who are persecuting them with eternal wrath. Now, this would have been encouraging to the church at Thessalonica. Their suffering was not an indication that God was pouring out his judgment upon them. Far from being an indication of judgment, their persecution, their suffering, was an indication to them of God's righteous judgment in two ways. One way, rewarding them who endure because they are counted worthy to inherit the kingdom. So their endurance through that suffering is manifest evidence that they have the kingdom. Do you see? They have to endure. If they endure, they inherit the kingdom. And it's manifest evidence, their persecution, manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God against those who have persecuted them by rewarding them with eternal punishment. Verse six, since this should be encouraging to the church because, verse six, it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. You see, even in the midst, in the context of great persecution, the Lord intends to encourage us with that reality. Your persecution, your endurance, your perseverance through persecution is an indication of God's blessedness upon you, God's favor God's grace, God's mercy, your endurance, uh, manifest evidence that you are counted worthy to inherit the kingdom. He's going to pay with tribulation those who trouble you, verse seven, give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. There will come a, a day when God's patience, God's mercy comes to an end and those who do not know God, those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ to turn from their sin and to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ will be visited with punishment, with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. That's the context, brothers and sisters, in which we serve. I would submit to you, that's the context in which we need to understand and interpret our own persecutions, our own difficulties, our own suffering. Think with me. If the captain of our salvation was made perfect through suffering, then we will be made perfect through suffering. Those of us who are united to Jesus Christ through faith, if he, the captain of our salvation, was made perfect through suffering, we're not going to be exempt from suffering. We're also going to be made perfect with him in the fellowship of his suffering. We're going to be made perfect through suffering. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. Listen to Hebrews 2, 10. For it was fitting, it was appropriate. It was right for him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting for him to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Because 
both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one. The one who is being set apart, the one who's being perfected, so to speak, and those who are being perfected through that means, through the means of persecution, through the means of suffering, it's fitting that they are all one. For which reason? Because we are one, he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you, O God. There's a sense in which, because we suffer with him in that way, he's not ashamed to call us brothers. He's not ashamed to call us brothers. He's suffered in that way, right? For you and I to suffer for his sake in that way, we have fellowship with him in his sufferings. It's what Paul was talking about in Philippians chapter three. And for that reason, Jesus Christ is not ashamed to call us brothers. So in that day, when we stand in the assembly before the throne of God, God in the multitude, worshiping and praising our elder brother, the Lord Jesus Christ in our midst, praising God with us, singing praises, us praising his name, he's not ashamed to call us brother because we've endured suffering together with him. We have fellowship with him in his sufferings. We've been talking about this a lot recently, but um, there is no suffering in heaven. No suffering in heaven. No pain, no sorrow. Every tear wiped from your eyes. Joy everlasting. Pleasures at his right hand forevermore. No suffering in heaven. The only opportunity that we have to demonstrate our love for the Lord Jesus Christ in similar fashion to the way in which he has demonstrated his love for us is right now in this life. How did he demonstrate his love for us? He loved us to the end of himself. To the point of death, even the death of the cross. He suffered, suffered for you. He suffered for me. And the only time that we'll have opportunity to express our love for him in a similar way is during this life of suffering, during this veil of tears, so to speak. It's the only opportunity you'll have to do that. So with Paul, that's a cause for rejoicing. It's a cause to embrace the fellowship of his sufferings. Because why? Why? Why would we do that? Why would anybody do that? Because we love the Lord Jesus Christ. Because you love the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why you would do it. We have fellowship with him in his sufferings. For which reason? He is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I. The Lord says, here am I and the children whom God has given me. If you're suffering for his sake, you're a child that has been given to the king and he is not ashamed to call you his brother. We are going to suffer persecution at the hands of the dragon. Far from being an indication of God's judgment, it is a manifest evidence of God's reward, counting us worthy of the kingdom. In our union with the Lord, who himself, for our sake, was made perfect through sufferings. When you are persecuted for the name of Christ, it is an indication of your future glory. Peter says, if you were reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Can you see the correlation between these things? All right. Revelation chapter 12, verse 13, when the dragon saw that he'd been cast to the earth, he persecuted with great wrath, persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. As the dragon persecutes the woman, the Lord himself protects and preserves the woman. Verse 14, but the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. The first here in verse 14, I want you to notice the connection between verse 14 and verse six. Take a look at those two verses with me. In verse six, the woman flees into the wilderness, presumably in anticipation of the devil's wrath, right? She flees. In verse 14, we see the means of her flight. She was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly there. In verse six, There is a place there in the wilderness that has been prepared for her by God. God has prepared a place for her in the wilderness and it's there that she is fed and cared for. In verse 14, the place in the wilderness is referred to as her place. 
And she is nourished there from the presence of the serpent. In other words, she is protected from, she is preserved from the presence of the serpent. In verse 6, the time of her sojourn there is 1,260 days. And in verse 14, that very same time period is referred to as a time and times and half a time. Okay, all these observations on those two texts. Those two texts are intimately connected. As we've already previously determined, the woman is representative of the people of God. We've established that fact, okay? And here is envisioned, if you will, the church in the wilderness of this world. The woman represents the people of God. That woman flees into the wilderness when the male child is caught up to God into his throne. When Jesus Christ ascends, he is enthroned in heaven. What do we know happens in the New Testament? Persecution breaks out against the church. What does the early church do? They flee everywhere. And the Bible says they went everywhere preaching the word. After the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, the very same disciples who had been scattered for fear of their lives, those very same disciples now marched right back into the city of Jerusalem and began proclaiming the Lord Jesus Christ and him crucified to their own deaths. They had seen the risen Lord. They wouldn't have died for a lie. They had seen the risen Lord, so they went right back into the city that crucified Christ, preaching Jesus Christ, right? Great persecution then arose in Jerusalem as manifest first in the death of Stephen in Acts chapter seven. Stephen is martyred, stoned to death outside the temple. In Acts chapter eight, verse one, Acts chapter eight, verse one reads, at that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. They're scattered outside Jerusalem. Verse four, therefore, those who were scattered, they went everywhere preaching the word. That's what the church does in the wilderness. They preach the gospel. The rest of the book of Acts, the rest of the book of Acts is a testimony of the witness of the church in the wilderness of this world. That's what Acts records. The witness of the church in the wilderness of this world. The Lord promised the disciples in Acts chapter one, verse eight, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It was in God's plan that the the woman would flee into the wilderness. She flees there with the gospel. So in Revelation chapter 12, verse 14, then the woman in the wilderness is a representation of the church in the world. Make sense? It's a representation of this, of the church in this world. We bear testimony to our Lord Jesus Christ. We are nourished there. Think with me. We have a place prepared there by God. There's a place in the wilderness prepared by God for her where she is nourished. What, what's being referred to? That's the church. That's the church. Her place in the wilderness is the church. That's where she's nourished by the word, where she is, where she is cared for, fed with manna from heaven, the bread of life who has come down from heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ, where she is, where she is her thirst is quenched with living water out of the rock, who Paul says that rock is Christ. Right? She has a place prepared for her by God where she's nourished and fed there. And all of that from the presence of the serpent. That's why the people of God in Revelation are sealed on their forehead, preserved from the wrath of the serpent. As we've already discussed, the time of that sojourn in the wilderness, it's 1,260 days or times, time, and half a time. That's a reference to this present evil age. It's a, present, a reference to the age in which we now live. It's that last period of redemptive history if spoken of by the prophet Daniel, right? That period of time that Daniel refers to, Daniel chapter seven, Daniel chapter 12, uh, that refers to the time of the end, the last week, if you will, of redemptive history. We're living in it, okay? Notice, notice the means of her strength, the means of her flight into the wilderness. Verse 14, she was given two wings of a great eagle. This is a, this is a beautiful picture. This is a beautiful picture and it's drawn from a description of Israel as God drew Israel out of Egypt into the wilderness to himself at the mountain of Sinai, right? Into the wilderness of Sinai. He delivers her out of her bondage in Egypt and draws her to himself out in the wilderness. Turn with me to Exodus 19, and I want you to see this. Exodus 19. Exodus 19. 
In Exodus 19, having delivered his people from the angel of death through the shed blood of the Passover lamb. I want, I want you to, as we work through this, I want you to consider these connections, the typology between what took place with Israel now coming out of Egypt into the wilderness and what takes place with the church, right? As God frees her from her bondage to Satan, from her bondage to sin and death, and she flees into the wilderness, okay? There's a connection between these two pictures. They have been delivered from the angel of death and their deliverance came by the blood of the Passover lamb. Who's our Passover lamb? Jesus Christ is our Passover lamb, okay? There's a connection between these two pictures. Having delivered them through the Red Sea, flood of his judgment, we're gonna see shortly, Satan opened his mouth with a flood to come after the woman, right? Having delivered them through the Red Sea flood of his judgment on dry land, he draws her out into the wilderness of Sinai with cords of love to himself, into the wilderness where he has a place in the wilderness prepared for her, where he's going to feed her with the bread from heaven, where he's going to nourish her with water from the rock, that rock that Paul says is Christ, where he's going to enter into covenant with her to be his own prized possession. And we see this beginning in verse one. In the third month after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on the same day, they came to the wilderness of Sinai. They'd gone out into the wilderness. For they had departed from Rephidim, had come to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. So Israel camped there before the mountain. Verse three, and Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain saying, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the children of Israel, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. It's the way God depicts their deliverance. God himself bearing them on wings and bringing them to himself in the wilderness. Now, therefore, verse five, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people for all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. As you're reading that, if you know your New Testament, you've got text popping up in your head as you hear those words. There's this connection that goes on with the church, Okay. As he has done with that physical, temporal nation under the old covenant, so God has done with us. God has done the same with us. He has borne us on eagles' wings and he has brought us to himself. It's a picture of strength. It's a picture of protection, preservation, God's own power, right? Bringing us on eagles' wings to himself in the wilderness. Those who have placed faith in his son, as those who have been brought into union with his son through the new covenant, we, as they were, are a special treasure in his sight, his own special possession. He cares for them, right? We are to him a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, as Peter tells us. As they were, that physical, temporal, earthly kingdom, so now the church, we are a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy 32. The Lord says, the Lord's portion, the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the place of his inheritance. He found him in a desert land and in the wasteland and a howling wilderness, he encircled him. He instructed him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. Now think about that with me, in the wasteland, in desolate places. The wilderness was a place of danger a desolate place, a dangerous place, a howling wilderness. And there's this picture of God encircling his people in love and in care as a, you know, a mother hen might encircle her chicks, bring them under her wings, right? He encircles his people, protects them, preserves them, teaches them, instructs them, feeds them. This is a picture of God's grace and mercy to his people, his loving kindness to them. He keeps them as the apple of his eye as an eagle stirs up its nests, hovers over its young, spreading out its wings, taking them up, carrying them on its wings, so the Lord alone led him and there was no foreign God with him. And we know from the testimony of Israel in the Old Testament that Israel had many foreign gods among them. This is a picture, an idyllic picture, if you will, of God's care for his people. And it points forward to 
the ultimate people of God, which are those who have been saved by virtue of the person and work of Jesus Christ throughout all history, Old Testament saints and New Testament saints. And God bringing them, as it were, into the wilderness of this world to himself on eagle's wings, where he himself in the wilderness encircles them and cares for them and feeds them, quenches their thirst, instructs them, grows them and matures them, beautifies them, protects them, preserves them. This is a picture of God's loving kindness for you and I right now in the midst of our persecution, in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our wilderness. This is what God has done. He has brought us out to himself in this way. And there will be no foreign God with him. We serve the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Listen to Isaiah chapter 40. Listen to Isaiah 40, verse 28. Have you not known Have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth? He neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He's not left us alone out here. He gives power to the weak and to those who have no might, he increases their strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary and the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. That is a promise of your perseverance through trial. If you're united to the Lord Jesus Christ and it's God himself who who upholds you as though on eagles wings, they shall walk and not faint. They shall run and not be weary. I've thought to myself several times, I would not have made it if it weren't for the Lord. Simply would not have, would not have lasted, would not have endured, would, have not have, would not have persevered if it weren't for the Lord. The only reason that you and I are still standing, the only reason this church is still here is because of the Lord. The Lord has preserved us. And that is a manifest evidence that he has taken joy in you, taken delight in us. It's manifest evidence that persecution that we've endured through because he has preserved us is that he has counted us worthy to inherit the kingdom. It's also manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of those who have persecuted, right? It's an indication of God's care for us in this howling wilderness. So it's a manifest evidence of his loving kindness to you and I in the midst of this desolate place, The woman, Revelation 12, verse 14, the woman was given two wings of a great eagle. She might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished there by God for times, time, and half a time from the presence of the serpent. She faces tribulation in the wilderness. She faces lack, difficulty, weakness, pain, suffering. The wilderness is a desolate, dangerous place, but God is the one who encircles her, protects her, and preserves her, and strengthens her. It's a picture of God's people, the apple of his eye, the object of his distinguishing love. And that picture is a picture of her in the wilderness surrounded by her enemies. Turn with me to Numbers 24. Numbers 24, let me give you another example of this. In the wilderness, she, is she strong? No, she's weak. Weak, we see it on the pages of scripture. She's weak. In the wilderness, is she great, right? Power in numbers? No, she's small. She's small. She's weak. She's surrounded by Canaanites. She is entirely, entirely dependent upon him who has encircled her and taken her under his wings. But encamped there in the wilderness, like a, like a diamond against a black backdrop, right? like a, a pearl in the mud, She encamped there in the wilderness, in the midst of that desolate place, she is beautiful. And she's beautiful because she is seen with God's eyes, so to speak, as beautiful. He has set his distinguishing love upon her and she is the apple of his eye. And this is depicted for us in Numbers 24. Balaam, that prophet for prophet, is about to prophesy in Numbers 24, verse one. When Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he did not go as at other times to seek Uh, to use sorcery, but he set his face toward the wilderness. And Balaam, verse two, Balaam raised his eyes and saw Israel, that tiny nation, encamped according to their tribes and the spirit of God came upon him. Now, think with me. Balaam is about to take up his oracle and about to prophesy. But 
Whose words are these? These are the words of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God came upon him and Balaam prophesied. And Balaam prophesies with words that reflect how God himself sees Israel encamped in the wilderness. Balaam took up his oracle and said, the utterance of Balaam, the son of Beor, the utterance of the man whose eyes are opened, the utterance of him who hears the words of God, who sees the vision of the Almighty, who falls down with eyes wide open. How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your dwellings, O Israel, like valleys that stretch out, like gardens by the riverside, like aloes planted by the Lord, like cedars beside the waters. He shall pour water from his buckets. His seed shall be in many waters. His king shall be higher than Agag. His kingdom shall be exalted. God brings him out of Egypt. He has strength like a wild ox. He shall consume the nations, his enemies. He shall break their bones, pierce them with his arrows. He bows down, he lies down as a lion, as a lion. Who shall rouse him? Blessed is he who blesses you. Cursed is he who curses you. That's a picture of the church in the wilderness. That's a picture of us in the wilderness. The church is the place that God has prepared there for his people. And it's there in the church just like in the camp of Israel, that God protects and preserves us from the presence, literally from the face of the serpent. Just I think, as I think about it, it's just this beautiful picture, very encouraging picture, very emboldening picture. It's a faith-fueling picture, right? This picture of how God loves and cares for his people in their wilderness wandering. It, all that we go through. God, he looks upon us with loving care, nourishing us, caring for us, feeding us, protecting us, growing us, encircling us, strengthening us. That's just encouraging to the church under persecution when we face difficulty together. In all of that, from Revelation 12, Satan has been cast down to the earth. He's in this world, but he's not in this church. He's in the world, but he's not in the church, not in the true church. We are, verse 14, we're nourished, we're protected, we're preserved from his face. If you think about that, that's why when someone is put out of the church under a process of church discipline, they are put out where there they are delivered over to Satan for the destruction of their flesh, that their soul might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus they're delivered over to Satan when they're put out of the church. Satan's not in the church. Satan is outside. And the disciplined person is put out there with him so that he can learn what it's like to suffer in that desolate place outside the camp of Israel, so to speak, out from under the protection that God's people enjoy in the church. So in our time together next week, we're gonna consider the nature of Satan's persecution then in verses 15 through 17. And we'll conclude our study of Revelation chapter 12. So brothers and sisters, take encouragement from this, take encouragement from your identity, who God has said that we are and how he views us encamped in the wilderness. Take encouragement from that. You are a thing of beauty in the wilderness. You are as a pearl, a diamond against a black backdrop. You are the apple of his eye. You're precious. You're beloved. You're that thing that he has set his distinguishing love upon that he has encircled with his wings, that he is caring for as precious in his sight. Know that he has told you all that you'll face beforehand. We are, after all, in a wilderness. So prepare yourself to serve him during this evil age. Gird up the loins of your mind. Gird up the loins of your heart. Be prepared to face persecution, difficulty, adversity. It will come. You and I are going to go home soon enough and the Lord's going to see to it. He's going to bring us into the promised land and we can trust him for that. And this momentary light affliction is producing for us, even now as we fellowship with Christ in his own sufferings, 
as we fellowship with him in his sufferings, this momentary light affliction is producing for us a far more weighty and an eternal weight of glory in the age to come. Amen? Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for this encouragement. We need it, Lord, you know. You know that we are weak and we are small. We are apart from you, entirely hopeless. I mean, you are the one, Lord, who has encircled us in your loving kindness. You have borne us on eagle's wings. You have strengthened us. You've prepared a place for us. You've brought us out to yourself. You hold us as the apple of your eye, as a, a diamond against a black backdrop, so to speak. And you have fed us and nourished us and given us fresh living water. You've given us the bread, which is from heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. You've given us that water out of a rock, which was Christ himself. And here in the wilderness, you care for us and grow us and mature us. You protect us from the face of the serpent. And in all this, Lord, you preserve us as we do what you have called us to do. We are worshiping witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ. Find us faithful to serve you, faithful to preach the gospel, faithful to love one another as our brothers and sisters in Thessalonica did. Help us find us faithful to endure, to persevere the persecutions and difficulties that we face like our brothers and sisters at the church at Thessalonica. And may it be manifest evidence of your righteous judgment. You are righteous and just to reward those who endure by faith in Jesus Christ, counting them worthy to enter the kingdom and or that you are just in rewarding those with trouble who trouble us. Because you are just and you will do right we rejoice in you. We're grateful to know this about you. Grateful for how you revealed yourself in this way to us that we might meditate on that as we walk through the wilderness in our service to you. May you be glorified in it. May our Lord Jesus Christ be exalted in it. May your spirit be glorified in the work that he has done in us and through us. May it all be for the sake of the bridegroom. We love you. Thank you. Lord, thank you for saving us. Make Thank you for the eternity we'll have to worship and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Hello and thanks for listening. My name is Mark Brashear and I have the blessed privilege of serving with the Saints at Cornerstone Church near Orlando, Florida. We're so grateful that you've connected with us through the sermon that you've just heard. For more information, visit us at cornerstoneorlando.org. Or better yet, come and see us on the Lord's Day at 3370 Snow Hill Road in Oviedo, Florida. We're just east of Orlando and about 15 minutes from the campus at UCF. It would be a joy to have you worship with us.